Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Daniel Keltner with Remax Crossroads Properties in Strongsville, Ohio. Last year, he closed 298 transactions with a total sales volume of $22 million. His average sales price was $73,000, of which 10% were buyers and 90% were sellers. He operates a team with 15 members, two asset managers, two contract closers, two contract negotiators, one accountant, four buyer agents, two field runners, two BPO MMR virtual assistants, one call center virtual assistant, and one team leader. Daniel Keltner is the team leader of the Crossroads REO team. He has been an agent for 14 years. He works in two markets, Metro Cleveland and Metro Chicago. In this call, Daniel talks about the worst first year of real estate production ever recorded. Virtual assistance in detail. How he went from break-even to profitability by outsourcing to VAs. His entire process of finding, hiring, training, and utilizing VAs. Where do you find VAs? Which countries have the best labor pools? His experience with three major outsourcing companies and what to avoid. How to post jobs, screen applicants, and negotiate agreements. How much to pay. You'll be surprised by the low cost. His quick and easy training system. The cheap internet tools to make it all work. Which tasks a VA can do well and which ones they can't. How his REO business works. The best approach to getting into the REO business. His team, his profitability, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Daniel. Hello, good to be here. Daniel, before we start talking about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. That's a uh, tough one. I, I was in high school. So basically, I was in school, but, and, and I worked my odd jobs to pay for, for high school. So I was a, uh, I was a waiter and uh, did some electrical work with my stepfather and um, had kind of a trade background, just you know, working for him while I was in school. So did you get your license right after you graduated? I did. I, I actually took uh, one year off and did a little bit of college and kind of figured out that that, that wasn't for me because I didn't want to be in that debt when I was uh, so ready to work. So I just kind of took the, the real estate courses and a couple of marketing classes, business, stuff like that. And, and then I kind of just hit the ground running. What made you decide to look towards real estate? For me, it was... Um, it was the fact that there was so little barriers to getting in into that business. And, 
you know, you're basically, you're in a sales business. You can go anywhere. There's so many different specialties in real estate and, and plus it interested me. And that, that was a pretty big part. Did you have a family member or a friend who was in real estate or was it just from taking a real estate class in school? It was actually just from, just from going to class. I think I might've met a couple of, I, I did. I met a couple of people while I was waiting tables and, um, they were just customers that seemed interesting and they happened to be realtors. And I think that kind of got my, my interest sparked. When you got started, did you have a fast start or a slow start? <laughs> Ultimately a uh, slow start, the s- slowest start you can have, which would be zero, zero sales in the first 12 months. Embarrassing to say, yeah. Were you full-time or part-time at that point? Full-time. I, that, that was all I was doing. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. So things have changed, haven't they? Yeah. Okay. Now, now, you were really young. Did you have a problem because of your youth? Was that the issue? Yeah, and, and that, was, that was my biggest issue. Nobody, nobody wanted to listen to me, which I can't blame them, given my age at the time. I was only 18 years old and like just turning 19. So, uh, yeah, that was a huge barrier for me. But I, I kind of, um, after the first year... The reason why things started picking up was because I kind of used, I, I learned how to use that towards my advantage instead of a disadvantage. Well, what do you mean by that? When you're young, you're very youthful and you're eager to please, eager to serve. And that was kind of what, what adults saw in me that they liked. They were, they were willing to put up with the fact that my knowledge might have not been the greatest because I was so eager to serve them. So how did the second year go? Second year was great. I actually... In my second year, uh, I want to say I did around 65000 in in gross commissions. And at the time, I didn't have a team. I didn't have bills. So, you know, it was great for me. I felt like I made $100,000 that year. How long have you been in real estate to this point? Licensed in the summer of 98. So I believe that would be going on 14, 15 years. And how many homes did you sell last year? Last year, we... We were pretty close to breaking 300. If, if we didn't, it was like 298 to, to 300 homes. That's fantastic. That's a, that's a pretty big shift from that first year. <laughs> yeah, it took, it took quite a while to get there. I wish I got there faster. Daniel, where is Strongsville, Ohio? Strongsville is a suburb of the Cleveland, uh, Cleveland Ohio, Northeast Ohio metro area. We're kind of about an hour hour and a half north of Columbus, and we're right there on Lake Erie. How is your market? The market is, it's a very kind of slow, conservative market. We took a lot of our, um, a lot of our lumps back in the late 90s when the manufacturing started to leave. You know, we, we're still seeing manufacturing closing down. So you know, we were kind of affected by all this, the foreclosures and make-outs before before the 2007 recession and the market crash. So when, when the market did crash, it's almost like we barely felt it here in Cleveland, Ohio. You're already in that mode. You, you hadn't taken a big rise, and so there wasn't a big fall. That's right. That's exactly right. If you were to look out at your market right now, what percentage of the homes being sold do you think are REO versus traditional retail sales? Gosh, I would have to say it's got to be in between 30 and 50% here in Cleveland. 30 to 50% REO? That's correct. And when I say that, it's 
that's REO, short sale, distress sale, you know, that, that makes up 30 to 50% of the market. So there wasn't a big rise. There wasn't a big fall. So it's just been a real melancholy market because there's been so much labor leaving. There's been so many people leaving the area. Is that correct? That is correct. It's just been just one of those one of slowly declining market for so long. You know, that, that is the market here. Have you seen your average sales price decline over the last 14 years? Yes, absolutely. I would say the past 24 months, however, my personal sales prices have increased as we've started taking in some higher-end REO properties. That opens up my next question. Do you have a niche or a specialization in your market? Yes, our, our biggest niche is, is REO and foreclosure and short sales. What percentage of your business do you think that accounts for? I would say that that accounts for about 80% to 90% of our business. Daniel, before I, I start talking about your REO business, I'd like to talk about an area that I think you have expertise in, and that is outsourcing and virtual assistance. Sure. The first question I'd like to ask there is, what are the pros and cons of working with a virtual assistant? The pros, I would say, is the, the cost is obviously much less. The attitudes are very good. They're very, um, they're very happy and appreciative of, of the work you give them. And they're pretty tech savvy. They're typically younger people and just very, very tech savvy, much, much more than me. So that would be three, three big benefits there. And then, you know, the, the obvious big one is the language barrier. So, you know, they, uh, they just do not speak as good English, even the best as the people in the States here. And then, you know, the second negative in, in my eyes is that you're kind of sending money out of the country, but, you know, that's uh, just the way business works. If somebody were wanting to hire a virtual assistant, first of all, how would they find one? Sure. Okay. So there's lots of places online that you can find assistance. The place where I kind of got started was I, I started Googling virtual assistants, things like that. And I came across a book that really kind of opened things up for me. It was, it was by Tim Ferriss, and it's called The 4-Hour Workweek. And that had a lot of websites in it. Basically, he just says, here's where you find them. And he just rattles off 10 websites. And that's kind of where I got started. First of all, how long have you been working with virtual assistants? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. It's, it's been going on two years now that I've been kind of toying with them. And it's, and it's been an evolutionary process, meaning, you know, when we first started, just throw an example, we started with Brickwork India because they were, that was who I kept hearing about was this Brickwork India. And I actually also read a book in 2007 by uh, Thomas Friedman called The World is Flat. That's where I learned about Brickwork and all those guys. So I gave them a try, didn't like them. And I, and I have you know, reasons for that. But then I went to my out desk and there's reasons we could always get into later why I didn't like them. And right now, the one I'm really liking is called Odesk and that's www.odesk.com. That is where I am hanging out nowadays. Have you looked at any others than these three? Are these the three primaries you've worked with over the two years? This is the three primaries that I that I really dug in with. I mean, I probably looked into maybe 10 others, 
but these were the three that I actually had some trust in. You know, when you're handing your credit card information out, you know, halfway across the world, it's it's basically who you trust. And that so basically, these are the first three I've trusted. Let's walk through real quickly. You mentioned Brickworks India. You had heard good things. You started working with them, but it didn't work out. Why did it not work out? The reason it did not work out, these guys in Brickwork India, what they do, just so you don't get kind of caught up in this, you are sharing that assistant between who knows how many people. And on a couple of training calls, Skype calls between my assistant and myself, and you know we can get into this later, how you train them. But what I noticed was in between my talking, because I could see their screen, I, I would see that people were emailing them as well. So you got your assistant who's kind of deluded towards working with you. Yeah, they're only charging 6 $7 an hour, but they're also working on other people's tasks, and I just did not care for that. So a lack of focus. I would say definitely. I can't remember where I heard it, but you can't have two masters, you know. After Brickwork India, you tried my Outdesk. You said you tried that for a while. What happened there? I did. And, and um, actually, to, to their credit, My Outdesk is an excellent organization. If you're one of those people that is looking for turnkey, you don't want to bother with anything, My Outdesk is probably a pretty good bet for you. For myself, I don't mind being a little bit more hands-in on stuff like this. So the thing about Outdesk is they may be charging you $8.60 per hour. So what they do is they find somebody in the Philippines or the Ukraine or somewhere like that to work for 4 to $5 per hour. So you've got that kind of buffer in between there where, you know, a lot of your money is just going to the middleman. You're not getting much value out of that money. And, you know, when you figure out that you can go find people on your own for 4 to $5 an hour, the same people, then that's kind of where I say goodbye to my outdesk and move on. How did you find those people directly? That's where I get to Odesk, that www.odesk.com. Now that website, you can go direct. You take your job. So, so maybe you have your, your uh, virtual assistant type of uh, job posting that you put in your local paper. You could just throw that right onto Odesk. All you got to do is create a profile. You don't have to, you don't have to pay or give your credit card anything at, at this time. You post your job, and then people literally just throw the, their information at you and say, hey, you know, I'd love to work with you, you know, I'd love to interview, and that's kind of how it goes. That's what you're paying for with My Outdesk, is they're doing some kind of screening process. They're acting as a middleman. Odesk is going direct to the labor, the labor pool. That is correct. And, you know, what Odesk is doing to kind of counteract that, that screening process they make everybody take tests to work for them. So you can literally, when somebody applies for an interview, you can click on their name and you can see all the skills they're proficient at, what they're, what, what they're good at, what they're not as good at. And they actually have test scores, standardized tests that they give these people, which might be, for example, Google PPC test, you know, and then you can see how they scored on that. If, if that's important to you and that candidate scored in the top 10%, which they do break all that down, then, you know, that might be somebody interviewed. That's how it goes. How does Odesk make money? Are you paying the fee directly to Odesk and Odesk pays the labor or is Odesk just a matchmaker? Yep. 
So what Odesk does is they say, okay, you can enter into a contract with that employee should you choose to hire them. And let's say I choose to hire somebody for $4 per hour, which is actually, I have somebody right now working for $4 an hour. Odesk, I want to say, charges 10%, which is just 40 cents. So I pay $4.40 per hour. Odesk gets the 40 cents, and that's it. Do you pay to Odesk, or do you pay directly to the labor? That's my favorite thing about Odesk. I pay directly to Odesk, not the labor. Because you know Odesk, you don't think they're going to rip you off or take your credit card and go buy a bunch of stuff. Yep. They're not only acting as this middleman that is a little bit of screening, but they're also acting as your cashier. You're running the money through them. It's so turnkey. I mean, and just a full disclosure, I have no financial interest in the company, but for what they've done for me, I, uh, you know, cause I've used them several times on, on other projects. It's, uh, it's awesome. It's pretty awesome. So that's why I don't mind throwing their name out. Now you mentioned earlier that they're hiring people in India, Philippines and Ukraine. Is that where you're seeing the labor base? Yeah, it's, um, it's anywhere that you're going to get away with geo arbitrage and the, uh, you know, and the dollar does well against whatever the local currency is. So it's going to be China, anywhere in Asia, pretty much is a safe bet. India, Ukraine, Eastern Bloc, even Russia, just everywhere. Where have your virtual assistants been from? Right now I have got, let's see, I've got two in the Philippines that are hourlies, one in the Ukraine that's an hourly, and then I have one in India that's a term which Odesk does term contracts as well. So right now we're building new websites and we posted, I want to say, oh, $250. We just posted the project and the guys that I decided to hire were from India. Yeah, so we have those countries right now. That's three countries. These intermediaries, Odesk and MyOutDesk and Brickwork India, they deal with whatever the exchange rate issue is, so you don't have to worry about that? Or does your charge fluctuate with the exchange rate? Your charge does not fluctuate. It's, um, at least I have not seen it happen in the past 24 months. You're hiring these folks as independent contractors and not as employees. Is that correct? That is correct. And you're able to do that because of these middlemen, they're sitting there, they're the actual contractor that you're hiring, and they're subcontracting out to the actual labor. That is correct. And so you haven't run into any issue where you owe for any kind of payroll tax or have to pay out for health insurance or any of these kind of items. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. And a huge, uh, huge reason why I even got into looking into this. Of the people that have worked for you, the virtual assistants, who's worked for you the longest? My two guys in the Philippines. These guys are coming on 12 months now. Daniel, are there any companies that you've heard of that you should stay away from? Are there any bad sources of VAs? You know, I have not, I have not heard of any bad sources, but I, what I would be careful of is um, the small little companies, the small little shops, and be careful about hiring somebody that you haven't heard information on. That, you know, all the companies I've hired, it's you know, somebody who said, yes, I've had good experience with, with that company. Now let's go into the actual process of finding and hiring somebody, the screening, interviewing, and hiring. 
You mentioned earlier that you'll post something. Explain that process to us, how you're posting it, you're finding people, and you're able to screen them down to the, the best candidates. How's that working? So basically, the posting of the job is very similar to what you would do here in the States. You know, if you're looking for somebody, you know, you've got to set the expectations up front, how much it is you're willing to pay so that they know what to expect, and then, you know, what it is that you want them to do on a daily basis. That's the, that's the biggest thing, in my opinion, when you're posting a job on, onto a site out there. How much information do you put in the post? As much as I can fit to be honest with you. I want to, you know, I don't want there to be any, any bad blood down the road. You know, if somebody says, you know, you you hired me for this, but now you're asking me to do that. And, you know, I just, I'd like to put in those posts exactly what they're going to be doing and exactly what I plan on paying them. And then that, that's it. Then now everybody that is going to be reaching out to me, they know what to expect. And that's what people want you post this out on this job board, what happens next? Okay, so what happens next is you're going to get a bunch of people, and this, this goes for any job board that you post to. So what you're going to get is a ton of people that say, I want this job, right? Because the, the job market's competitive, not just, not just here in the States. I've learned that it's really competitive abroad. So you need to find a way to kind of screen those people down and kind of whittle them down without having to talk to all of them, right? Right. How do you do that? Okay. So here's the system. Basically, I want to see how the people communicate. And that's my first, you know, since that's the biggest hurdle of hiring an outsourcer, that's the thing you want to get out of the way first. So what I do is I do a copy and paste email message because a lot of these message boards all the messages kind of go through that website and you can reply, you know, they have their own inbox system. So, so what I do is, so I don't have to retype a message each time. I'll just copy and paste the reply to maybe all 30 applicants who applied today. So then I'll, I'll say something like, Hey, I want to, I want to talk to you a little bit more about the position. Uh, I'm glad you're interested. Would love to chat with you some more. Here's my Skype information. And then I'll, and I'll give them my Skype information and then I'll say, please contact me via Skype as, as soon as you have time. And then that's how you kind of get to the next step. Does that mean you're accepting a phone call from them? Well, Skype, you know, not only can you phone call, you can also instant messenger chat, which, you know, I find that really useful for this because you can kind of get an immediate dialogue that's back and forth as opposed to email where it could be five minutes in between where they really think about how they're going to type to you and, and stuff like that. The IM chats are more off the cuff. Do you give them a time to respond or are they just coming in at all kinds of random times during the day? Good question. So they come in at random times and you got to establish that pattern. You, you got to pay attention to what time is their time zone, right? And then, you know, who's replying. So, okay, so let's say you reply to that message and let's say they're only replying or trying to chat with you during their time zone as opposed to the your daytime time zone. You kind of want to keep an eye on that too because you want people that are on your schedule back here in the States. Those are usually the people that are a good fit for you. And you're finding that out by when they respond. Absolutely. I mean, if I'm chatting with somebody and the only time they seem to want to chat via Skype is at 10 p.m. at night, 
then I know, okay, this is somebody that's not on the schedule. They're not, they're not a pro, you know, they're a novice or a rookie. The pros, you know, they're, they're chatting with you at 4 a.m. their time because that's what time they're usually doing tasks. They're, they're already working for people back in the States, so they're already a night person. That's the person I want. They're pulling a night shift in their country to work a day shift in yours. That is correct. That's who you want. So you've posted this message. They've responded. And then the second step is, hey, contact me through Skype. And I assume there you're saying Skype IMing. And so they respond to you through Skype IMing. You start to have a conversation. What do you talk about during the conversation? Anything. <laughs> I, I literally talk about anything. Basically, chatting like, like I am with a friend. So I might just say, you know, hey, how's, how's the weather out there? How, how are things going? You know, thanks for responding to the ad. You know, did you have any questions about it? Just, just anything that gets a back and forth type of conversation going between you and that person. So you, so you can gauge their, their language and, and how they talk, their, their typing skills, you know, how they type in English. That's basically the reason for that. How many people respond from the initial ad? Okay, so let's say you post something for 4 to $5 an hour. You're gonna get you're gonna get around fifty or sixty responses pretty much anywhere you post that, as long as it's a, a pretty big site. How many people then make it to the next cut? So how many people will start IMing? Okay, so when people type that initial message to you or say, Hey, you know, I'm interested in job, you know, wanna wanna interview for the position. So this is where you can sit down and now one of the things I like about Odesk to to harp back on them, I can shortlist that applicant. So let's say I've got my inbox of 60 applicants. I can click on the person, look at their scores, their grades, their reviews, how many stars they have, and and their resume of other people they've worked for. And I can decide if I want to shortlist, which is like deleting them, or if I want to star them. So out of 60, I might star like 10, 12 people that make that next cut. So yeah, I guess I kind of got, I reversed that step with the Skyping step. That's when I start to Skype is after I've already narrowed those people down. You get the initial response. You go through and screen the top 50, 60 people. You get it down to a list of 10 to 15. And that's when you bring in the IM to start conversing with them. That is correct. What's the next step? Okay. So the next step would be your phone call. Let's say you end up with like two or three people you really like. And, you know, I've had that situation where I was, the first person I talked to on the Skype phone was like, bam, I hired them. I was like, you're perfect. I'll hire you. And then you've got your other ones where you might want to talk to two or three or four people on your Skype headset. And then you decide, you know, the person that, that talks really well on the phone and it's not just so much how they're talking at that point. When you're doing the Skype call, it's, it's a lot more about personality and, you know, what type of personality, are, are you a motivated type person, you know, things like that. How long are those conversations, how long do they typically last? You know, it, it all depends on that person on the other end. I mean, I'll talk to somebody as long as they'll let me talk to them. And my reasoning for that is that, you know, I'm hiring you on a long-term basis. If it was a short-term, 
you know, I would just be hiring on like a term contract in there. But if it's an hourly, I'll talk to anybody as long as I possibly can. And I assume they have a lot of questions for you at that time. They're trying to find out more about the job. You're telling them more about it. You're trying to learn more about them. You're just trying to find out if there's a good fit. And that's absolutely correct. And, you know, once once you establish that comfort level with them, and which is what I do try to do, then they start to have all their questions. And that's really that's really helpful, too, to listen to what kind of concerns they have and things like that. I assume at that point, you said you, you sometimes hire the first one, but you're probably going to make a, a decision at that point. You're going to find one. If, if you don't like them, I guess you'll start over. But if you find one you like, what happens next? So if you find one you like, you basically go back into your account. And this is how it works on most sites. And you just click hire. And when you click hire, it kind of generates a, a generic contract, which keeps keeps everything in writing between you and that independent contractor or subcontractor. And, you know, most of the time the terms is just the hourly rate and expectations of the job. And I can't think, I can't remember what's, what's in that contract, but it, it'll come up. So you look through that and you say, okay, you click hire and that's it. Then they start working. And so you typically use the contract provided by the service provider you don't create your own contract. That is correct. In the States, when I hire somebody here, I don't even use a contract. So, you know, that's, um, it's really just for everybody's comfort level, however much comfort you need. And, and by the way, when you do click that hire and it generates the contract, that's usually when you have to enter your credit card information details so that they can bill you. Did you have to pay anything to ODES to start this process to do the first post? Nope, nothing. So it's free to get started. That's correct. How did you know at this time of contract, how much to pay? You said that's one of the terms. Is that something that has been negotiated between you and the labor? Or was that something that had already been posted on the ODES site? How did you come to those final terms? There's a couple of ways you do it. First off, a lot of these contractors, and there's, there's literally hundreds of thousands of people that go on to these job sites and they post like, this is what I typically make per hour. So, you know, if you're narrowing down your applicants by, you know, how, how much you want per hour, those are the only guys that are going to come up. And, you know, sometimes you might post a $4 job per hour and the applicant, you know, maybe somebody applies that makes typically $6 per hour. You just, you just negotiate that between yourself and the applicant and say, well, you know, I can only pay you $5 per hour. So you just type that five into the box when you're hiring contract, and that's what generates on all the terms. You click the hire button and you go to that contract. You are the one that's filling in the amount that's going to be paid. That is correct, yes. It wasn't predetermined by the service provider or the labor. So you have real control over that. You know exactly what it's going to be. Oh, yeah. You have total control over all that stuff. And were there any other terms in that contract? For instance, you mentioned earlier hourly labor versus a term or a project. Mm-hmm. Is that in this contract? Yeah. Basically, when you click hire on anybody, you can make them a term employee or an hourly. And it, so if you did were to select term, a couple more options come up. You might say there's going to be four milestones in the project and you know, milestone one's going to be $100, et cetera. That's, that's how term works. Those were probably predetermined in your original offer out there in your listing. 
Yeah, typically, like when when I offer a website project, you know, and I say, okay, I'll pay two hundred and fifty dollars. The milestone payments are not set yet until you and the the contractor, you know, you 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 verbally agree. You say, okay, that's reasonable to me. And then when you're generating your contract with the hire button, you go ahead and put those milestone payments in. Okay, so let's say you click the hire. You've hired this person. Now what? Now you get started. So. Basically, you're going to have somebody who's uh, halfway across the world that you got to figure out how to train. And this is where most people call it quits. They, you know, they get through and they say, yeah, you know, that was a novel idea, you know, paying the less per hour, but I, I can't, I can't train this person. And that's where a lot of people give up and uh, understandably why. So what you got to have is, is the right technology in place to get somebody trained. What is that technology? The technology that I personally use and am loving uh, right now is Microsoft Office 365. What it is, it's an enterprise server, but it's got a couple of really robust tools with it. One of them is called Microsoft Link. And what that does is it turns your computer into, it's another version of Skype, kind of like Skype, where you can make a USB headset phone call to another user of Skype, right? Well, Link does the same thing, except for now with Link, you can share each other's screens back and forth. You can record the session. So if it's a training session, you can, you know, you can record it at the beginning and you can share control over each other's computers. So if I'm, let's say, to use it as an example, if I'm teaching somebody how to pull comps or how to enter a BPO form, I can do my headset phone call with that person. I can watch what they're doing on their computer, and I can jump in and take control of their mouse pointer and you know, to help them through where they kind of get stuck. And all the while, I'm recording that session, which they have access to in the future, and they can kind of refer back to it. This is kind of the best thing I've come up with so far. That's cool. Yeah. Now, is that software you buy, or do you have to pay a monthly fee for that? How does that work, this uh, Microsoft Office 365? So you pay a monthly fee for it, and I want to say, yes, it's $6 per user. So if it's yourself and... You know, let's say you're building an outsourcer team. I mean, you get your first guy and yourself that's going to be 12 bucks a month. And you get an email address with it and full use of the uh, cloud-type server. Now, the only thing that I think people get nervous about with what you said is taking control of the other computer. Mm-hmm. Would your assistant be able to take control of your computer? If you allow it. So when you're sharing each other's screens or, or whatnot, Basically, what happens is, let's say we do our USB phone call and we've got our IM box. You've got all your controls on the IM box that say, okay, share my screen. So right now, they do not have control over your PC at all. And then they can request control on their end. It's, it's a button, or you can even offer it on, on your end. But the point is, it's only available during that session and you, you can totally see what's going on and stop it at any time if you wanted. You would have to confirm and give them control of your screen. 
That's correct. So if they click request control on their side, a little button pops up in your in your chat box that says, you know, allow or deny control. Are there other services within the MS Office 365 that you use, or is it all mainly this link? So basically, I use the enterprise type server, which is your your Microsoft Outlook is synced to your phone, your laptop, and any other computer where you use it. And it also syncs your contacts and your calendars. And, you know, so you can share your calendar with your entire team, your contacts. That's pretty robust. It's the best thing I've seen so far. So you've got the the mail server function, the link function, and then you've got the SharePoint server, which is basically like a cloud storage type function. Is that all included for the $6 or do you pay extra, for instance, for that storage? Nope, it's, it's all included for the $6. It's a great deal, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Did you try other products, other ways to make this work? Yeah, I did. I used to try Skype and I never did buy Skype Premium, but the the cheaper version of Skype, you know, the phone calls were were a little bit fuzzy sometimes, delayed, the screen control was difficult or slow. So that's kind of why I sought out Microsoft. For training, you do screen sharing and you walk them through it, also chatting with them through the phone line, through the Skype line. So you're talking, you're showing the screen, just like if you were sitting right down next to somebody in your office and showing them how to put together the proposal. That is correct. It's completely 100% collaborative. And you get to record it, which is really cool because they can go back and look back at the training session if they have questions later without actually having to talk to you. That is correct. Those recordings are, I assume, stored then on MS Office 365, this enterprise server, and so they have access to it at any time. What else do you do for training? Okay, so for training, that is about it. A lot of our corporate clients hand us down training materials, kind of like webinars, things like that. So I'll typically share those links with my employees. And if it's something that's, that applies to what they're doing, I'll, I'll ask them to watch it. But that's about it. You know, between the hands-on training and uh, the web training. And then also, I guess, lastly, with the Microsoft link, since my employees in the States have it as well, the outsource employees can literally just IM anybody here in the office to ask them a question. So some training happens that way too. So everyone's connected, the entire team. Absolutely. Yes. So it's basically a network in the cloud. That's right. From watching things like on um, TED Talks and, and things like that, when you when you look at what what these smart people, which I don't really consider myself a smart person, they they all talk about the same thing. The future is going to be a collaborative type of um, working environment, even when you're not together. So that's kind of what I, I went to create. And that's, I think that's pretty much what we have now with, with the Office 365. What kind of tasks do you delegate out to virtual assistants? And what kind of tasks would you not want to delegate out? Great question. Tasks that I would not want to delegate out are things that require analytical type decisions. So You know, if you've got, for example, an issue that that pops up, you need to deal with it and then inform the client about how you recommend, you know, they should proceed on it. So, you know, it might be a break-in that you had on an REO property or, or something like that. 
So something that requires that analytical type thought and then a decision on action and then talk communicating with the client, those types of things I would not give to an outsourced employee. What kind of things do you give to them? The kind of things that I do give to them are the things that are routine and are pretty much the same type of task over and over and over again. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Repetitive tasks. Give us some examples. What have you been outsourcing? Okay, so one thing I literally see here, it's been about a 30-day project that just wrapped up. We started right after Thanksgiving, and we just wrapped the project with outsourcing our phone line. Our main, all of our main office lines, we have, we have one main office line in Illinois where we have an office as well, and then one in Ohio, and those phone lines ring off the hook. So what was going on now was the calls were coming in to our girls here in the States, our main admin here in Ohio, and then our main admin in Illinois. Now they get routed to the Ukraine via a phone program called Ring Central. So the phones don't even ring to my girl's desk anymore. The thing that took so long is that we had to create a rule for every type of phone call. Just like you would create rules in your Microsoft Outlook that say, you know, if this message comes in from this person, it goes, it gets forwarded automatically to this person and then delete it out of your Outlook. So we tried to do that same thing with the phone calls. And it took about one month of literally answering calls together collaboratively with my uh, outsourced guy in, in the Ukraine until we pretty much got through every type of phone call that would come into a real estate office. Now he knows what questions to ask, where to forward that person. And if he can't forward it to the person to just take a transcribed message and email it to the appropriate person, if it's a buyer, you know, the state laws in Ohio, you can't talk to a buyer at all, but the state laws in Illinois are different. You can talk to a buyer, you can answer certain questions and then give them the info and pass them along to an agent. So after getting all those things hammered down, now it just happens automatically. It sounds like you've outsourced your receptionist position. <laughs> That's right, yes. Why did you do that as opposed to just putting in place an automated attendant, a phone tree? That's a good question, too. So there, there was a little bit more cost to having this done by a human being, but from the feedback I've gotten from agents and buyers, you know, they don't really want to talk to an auto attendant. You know, they don't want to sit there and press the buttons and get routed to this person, that person. And, you know, I just felt like if they got a live person, that would put us one step above the other agents who are using the auto attendants. Because you know, with the auto attendant, you press a button, you get a voicemail, you have to leave a voicemail, then you hope for a call back. But if they call our office, you get a live person, you get a warm transfer to a, a real live person. And if not, there's a transcribed email message to the girls in their Outlook, which typically gets a faster response. How much are you paying this person in the Ukraine? $4 per hour. That's the trade-off. 
you were able to create a personal receptionist, a live receptionist, without the cost that you would be associated with if you hired someone here. That is correct. And, you know, what's also important to know, yeah, okay, so people might say, okay, well, like you said, you know, why not use the auto attendant? This guy, when he's not answering the phone, he's basically my personal assistant. What other tasks are you having him do? The one task that is his main function is buyer follow-up. So we use top producer here, but this would work with anything. So when a buyer call comes in, he basically just collects the vital information that, that he's allowed to ask, which is their, their contact information in case they get disconnected and you know what it is they're calling about, questions like that. Really just have about three or four basic questions. Then he forwards them on to our referral partner, which will be you know another selling broker out of our office. But then they get entered into our our follow-up system, you know our our CRM top producer, and he puts them on the appropriate drip campaigns, and then assigns the follow-ups to the buyer agents so that we can get our conversion percentages up. That's a pretty big function of his daily job when he's not answering the phone. How many virtual assistants have you hired in the last two years? In the last two years, I would say pretty close to 10. What are all the different kinds of projects or tasks you've had them work on? Websites, research, you know, uh, let's say like, for example, uh, if I want to learn how to use Microsoft 365, for example, or I want to know the best, that may not be the best product out there. There might be something that I don't know. So I might... I might look for somebody with that expertise and send them out. PPC research, just anything, like a receptionist, BPO specialist, somebody that can help me with showings, things like that. You're having some of the virtual assistants work on the BPO work? Oh, absolutely, yeah. That's, that one is a huge one. We actually have one that's dedicated to that full-time. You said showings. What do you mean by that? I mean, they're in another country. They can't go out and show properties. So what do you mean? Well, yeah, what I meant there was uh, following up with showings. We have those automatic systems like Showing Desk, Showing Central, stuff like that, which send out those emails to agents, you know, and they say, you know, what's the feedback? But since it's automated, a lot of people don't bother to fill it out. What his job is, is anytime somebody shows a property, the email's automatically forwarded to him. And then he's got a few email signatures that he, he sends out to the agent for that's requesting the feedback, you know, because we, we consider the realtors in our market, they're showing feedback is pretty vital. So we'll go an extra step or two above and beyond to try to figure out what everybody's saying about a house. So we definitely get them involved on that. So showing feedback, Mm-hmm. You've mentioned him a lot. Are you typically hiring men or women? In the States, I have all women. And outsourced, I have all men. Was that on purpose? Not at all. Not at all. I actually did have, uh, I did have a female one that was in the mix prior to the most recent hire. And I actually had to let her go just because she wasn't, she wasn't learning up to speed as, as most of the applicants. So we just... You know, we had to cut the cord and call it quits, which you cannot be afraid to do that because in outsourcing, you are going to get some does. I've, I've done that with about two or three people already. When you terminate, 
do you do that directly through Odesk? How does that work? Yeah, if if you have an outsourcer, you do it through the outsourcer. And if, if you were going direct, you just do it with them. It's it's usually pretty easy. It's much easier than doing it in the States. I got a different question. We're talking about these tasks that people do, this training and then the tasks. On the day-to-day, how do you make sure that your virtual assistant is actually doing the work and not just playing in this other country and charging you? Okay, really good question. Two ways. My biggest thing is keeping people so busy that they're just really busy. And if you know your job, you know, if you've been in it, you know, if this person's in charge of this function of the company and that function and that function, you know, based on your volume and where you're at, how busy that person is, if that makes sense. You know, so if we're running, for example, right now we have, it looks like we have 200 and 280 properties in under management. So I know the person that enters new listings and things like that, they're busy. They're really, really busy. And that's, that's kind of how I kind of keep an eye on how busy people are. You can never actually watch them, but that kind of goes for the States too. And then the second way is in Microsoft Link, there is the, that IM feature with the Office 365. So if everybody's on and I'm on, I can see that who's all logged in and I can, you know, if I'm not sure if they're busy enough, I might just reach out and, and shoot them a quick bing on the, on the instant messenger and say, Hey, what are you working on? Are you busy. And then they'll, they'll tell me what they're working on or whatever. So that's kind of the ways that I personally keep track. But the biggest thing is just knowing your workload. So that workload, it seems to me that you'd be looking at their results. The work is either getting done or it's not. Are you spot checking that every so often? Are you looking at it daily, hourly, weekly? How often are you checking to make sure they really entered the information in the MLS? Absolutely. So what we do is I manage by exception, which is we put systems in place. So, you know, when a listing agreement comes in, I maxed out on rules in my, in my Microsoft Outlook inbox. So anything that comes into me, it usually goes right back out to the appropriate person so it gets listed. His job is that once it's complete, he has to send an email to another person and they kind of check over the work and sign off on it. So that's usually kind of how everything is kept in a checks and balance. And then there's occasionally, uh, let's say, for example, with one of our clients, one of our REO sellers, they run reports. and they, So you might show up on that report and they say, you know, we sent this listing to you on Friday, today is Monday, and it's still not in there. You know, we haven't received the copy of it, whatever. That's when you, you meet with your team and you manage by exception and you just, you set the expectation that, hey, if you show up on this report again, you're done. And usually that's, that fixes that problem right there. I've heard some other folks working with VAs, they'll have the VA write a report at the end of the day stating everything they did that day and send it off to you in an email. Do you do that or have you tried that? No, and, and I actually don't even like it. You, you can tell that that is a common practice by uh, VAs that work for like my outdesk, for example. So those guys are trained by my outdesk because they specialize so much with realtors to go ahead and type up that, that report on, here's what I did today. Here's what I, here's what I was working on all day. But 
you know, I feel like they spend more time paying attention to and tracking what they're doing than actually doing work, if that makes sense. They've got a detail report that looks like it took them an hour to, to maintain throughout the day. You know, that's a problem for me. It sounds like it's coming down to trust. You've built up trust. You are reviewing what's happening every once in a while, but you trust that the work is getting done and therefore you're able to open up more time for actual work. Absolutely. Trust is huge. I mean, if, if you're working with a VA and talking with them, you know, it, there's a relationship there. And if you don't trust them, then they shouldn't be working for you. It, you know, if you feel like you got to watch them, they shouldn't even be working for you to begin with. If you were to advise someone who's just thinking about hiring their first VA, are there any pitfalls that they should look out for? Yeah. The, the biggest pitfall I, I feel is that people do not take the time to properly train them in the beginning. How much time do you typically spend doing the training in the beginning? Is Are you doing the training or someone else and how much time? I personally like to do the training myself. I feel that that is pretty critical. If somebody is going to be working for you for years, you know, then you should be able to dedicate a few hours every day until that person is up to speed. Uh, just kind of hands-on, here's how you do it, here's what to do, training. And you know what? They really appreciate that. And when you're spending that much time with people, you, know, you really get to know them, and that's where the relationship and the trust and everything kind of build. So that's, that's why I feel why it goes wrong in the beginning is that training and not, not that giving them the time. And then at some point, you hand the management of that virtual assistant off to someone else in your office, or do you continue to manage the virtual assistant? I hand them off. So once they are exactly how somebody would want them in my office, then they're ready to be handed off. But, you know, I, I still kind of keep in touch with them, and they'll still they'll put the questions to me on the instant messenger. You know, they'll say, hey, so-and-so isn't in the office today. I had a quick question. Here it is. And then, you know, I'll take the time with them then. Or if, you know, if they have a question about, are we off on Christmas and Christmas Eve, they'll IM me, things like that. So you always stay in touch. But the day-to-day, -day, I, I like to make them have to report to somebody that's actually here, not me. I've heard people made mistakes with hiring people from the Philippines. Uh, I think it was the Philippines. Something about bonuses that they're supposed to be a 13th month of pay or something. Is that true? Absolutely true. And uh, that was actually one of those questions I used when I was interviewing somebody on Skype. So, you know, I wanted to interview this, this person on a phone call. And I, had, I also had heard that question and I wanted to ask it given Christmas was coming up. And I had two Philippine VAs. So there is a 13th month, but really all you guys need to know is that it's a big Christmas bonus. And when I say big, what they expect is about, oh, they expect about a half to one month's pay as a Christmas bonus. And, you know, to me, that just wasn't really, you know, feasible so what I did was I, I just gave them the same thing I gave the rest of my staff, which was not an entire month's pay. But your money spends a lot further out there, too, so you have to keep that in mind, too. But 100 to $200 American dollars will keep pretty much any Philippine person happy for a Christmas bonus. You also mentioned at the very beginning that some of these folks don't communicate as well as people in America. So 
How do you deal with that when you're trying to train them? Is it really slow down the training? Yes and no. You just have to kind of listen a little bit harder. You know, there's a lot of things that kind of could be taken out of context. They, they understand very well, but to have a hard time articulating it. Is there any other advice that you could give somebody who's thinking about hiring a virtual assistant? Anything else you could think of that we haven't talked about? No, my advice is to do it. Stop thinking about it and just do it. I, I thought about it since 2007 when I first read The World is Flat, and I didn't really do it until 2011. So, you know, four years I could have been saving money and making life easier, but that's how long I procrastinated actually doing it. So if you think about doing it, just do it. Let's do this. Let's jump back into your production today, what you're doing today, your business, your core business. You said that you're basically generating the majority of your business from distressed sales, from REOs, foreclosures, short sales. Could you please list the top three ways that you're generating leads for that business? Sure. I believe this is pretty common knowledge, but it, it cannot be, it can't be said enough. Networking is number one. So the, the biggest way I, I get business is to go to where people are involved in that business. And that would be trade shows, conferences, office visits to the clients, or networking with other REO brokers. That's way underrated. Which trade shows and conferences do you go to? If you were just getting in or really trying to hit the ground running, I would go to every single one. And then, okay, so you might say, okay, well, that would be really expensive. So then what I would say to you there is don't even register for the conference. Just go in and book yourself a night at the hotel or a night or two and just hang out. You know, you're, you're obviously in the business, so you're going you're gonna to be surrounded by people that are in the business and just try to be able to strike up conversations with them at, at the bar, at lunch, in the lobbies, just wherever you can see people. And if you can happen to go into a couple classes or, or if they offer a discount rate while you're there, definitely go register and go to a couple classes and just kind of totally immerse yourself in that world. Could you give us your top three conferences or trade shows that you go to? It's the must go to for you. You, you really want to go to them. I would say the, the REO Max, the REO Five Star, and the, um, the CMBA, like Commercial Mortgage Banking Association, which is typically held in Vegas, I want to say. That one's good. And then they have like the Western States, stuff that not a lot of brokers are going to. It's usually just mortgage bankers and, and people like that. I've actually made some good some good contacts there because there's not a ton of people just scrambling up to the front of the room after the class is over, like, like at an REO five star, you know? So at an REO five star, what you would do is just raise your hand during the class and be like, you know, well, do you know anybody that handles such and such a topic in whatever state you cover, Illinois, Ohio, whatever. And then, you know, all you, all you're trying to do is get like maybe one name, not always just directly an asset manager, if that makes sense, because those people are just on such high guard at the conferences. So you're doing more networking with other brokers then? Absolutely. That's kind of been one of my, one of my niches. REO brokers are eager to help. They're empathetic to your problems and your frustrations about entry into the business. And 
they probably work with a lot of the same clients that you're going after, especially if they're, you know, a seasoned REO broker. So if you establish yourself as, you know, as an expert, they, they might just be willing to share a contact with you, which that means the world. Once you got the contact, everything is in your hands. What do you think is the worst way to try to get into REO? Oh, okay. So the outsourcers, personally, they're kind of all kind of falling off the wayside. There's not as many as there used to be. You know, if you're just going to chase the outsourcers on the phone and, and email and sign up on their websites, you're going to get some action that way. But it's very expensive, low, very low profit type of work and, and difficult service. So be careful about going after those outsourcers and the REO assigns, you know, those, those companies that email everybody and they, they ask for $100 to sign up or the asset manager lists, you know, money grabs are what we call them, you know, in our circles. Somebody wanted to start brand new today. How would they be able to go direct? If you want to go direct, what I would start off with is it comes down to a service issue. And you're going to have this in any type of real estate you practice. If you're going to be doing retail, whatever, offer help before you're asking for an order. So in the REO world, that might be offering a second opinion BPO for free or offering a property inspection. Once you do find a contact, you know, you do have to find a contact and you have to get creative sometimes about finding it, but offer them stuff for free. Don't ask them for stuff because then you kind of fall into that same bucket. There's a big bucket of agents that ask for stuff. And then there's a small bucket of agents that just ask if they can help. How many banks, uh, asset managers are you currently working with? Currently, we're probably close down to about 10. And at the peak, we were around 30. Why is that shrunk? Two reasons. The industry, number one, everybody is... uh, Right now, everybody's getting off the outsource trains and they're coming back in-house as inventories kind of shrink. And number two is we fired a lot of clients. Once we figured out, you know, what was profitable and was, what was not, and some of these were really big clients, you know, most of them outsourced, but we did let go of clients that weren't profitable. Are these all private banks and private outsources? Or are you also working with government entities? It's both. We have some private ones, some big private, some small private, little credit unions, and we've got the big uh, GSEs like Fannie Mae and, and HUD, things like that. So you're working with Fannie Mae and HUD? That's correct. Are you working with Freddie Mac? We are not working with Freddie Mac in Ohio because somebody else out of our brokerage already works with them. And you know, so that's one thing that's kind of held us from that point of entry there, but we are we're pretty close to making some progress on signing our Illinois office up with them. The Fannie and the HUD, are you going to them direct or are you doing that through an intermediary? We do Fannie Mae direct. We used to do outsourcing when they had it. We took those just because we were so familiar with Fannie Mae, how Fannie Mae did things. So we, with those outsourcers, we did work with them. HUD, we go through an outsourcer called Home Telos. How long have you been working the REO market? The REO market, I have been working since 2003 when I was doing CBPOs is where I started. The company back then was called RRR Review, 
which was a division of Fairbanks Capital, and they were paying 75 bucks for an exterior drive-by future REO BPO, and you could literally do 10, 20 of them a day. It was, it was awesome. So you started on the BPO side and then moved into the assignment side. I did. You know, we were doing BPOs like crazy, and that was pretty profitable given how much they were paying at the time. And then, uh, you know, we, we got in with Auckland and a couple other companies doing BPOs. And all of a sudden, we would get these assignments over that just kind of looked like they were REO listings. So we said, okay, well, great. You know, we'll do this too. Currently, it looks like you're working in two different markets, Ohio and Illinois. Is that true and why? Yeah, that is correct. In Illinois, it's a long story, but I had another business there. So I went out there kind of looking for a a home to purchase to live in. And what we found was that the market was actually worse, in worse condition than than Ohio. And that's kind of when the light went off and said, you know, we need to be out here as well. Do you own the office that you work out of in Ohio? In Ohio, I do not. And um, long story short, the the reason for that is you need a a four-year college degree. And and the brokerage model is just a little trickier to work in Ohio. In Illinois, you don't have those barriers. So I'm the broker owner in Illinois. Uh, How far apart are those markets? I don't have a map in front of me. How far is that? Is it a drive? Oh, yeah, it's a drive. It's it's about five hours, which I'm a huge audiobook listener. So, you know, I, I kind of just, when I'm at work, I'll make notes of which book I want to listen to. When it's time to make that bi-weekly trip over to Chicago, I literally just bang out two books in the car and the drive just flies by. Do you have two different staffs in the two different markets or do you have one that's the central location, and the other one's a satellite. We do not have anything that is like headquarters. Since everything's moving over to this like collaborative type online environment, you know, it's almost like we're spread out everywhere, and that's just fine. You know, because we have an office that needs a physical secretary and and person at it in Illinois, same in Ohio, and etc. You know, so we we just kind of work out of pods. You know. Have you seen that banks have refocused on short sales and reduced or eliminated REO? Uh, yes. Ever since the, the affidavit issue, the whole robo-signer ordeal, it, it seems like short sales have made a pretty big resurgence. The percentage of your business, what percentage is still REO? The majority. The overall market shrunk, but you've still been doing a lot of REO, correct? That is correct. Do you think that it's too late for someone new to start pursuing banks and REO properties? Not at all. I think that's what people are going to tell you. But I think there's always, just the, the awesome thing about America is, you know, there's always that healthy competition out there. There's always somebody who's doing better than somebody else, a, a better job or offering a better job. And, um, you know, asset managers and brokers is, are no different, in my opinion. There's always somebody that's willing to do a better job and somebody who's willing to hire them. Daniel, you've got a large team. Tell us who's on your team. Starting from the, from the beginning, the, the people that you hire, your runners. We've got one runner in Ohio, two runners in Illinois, just because it takes, it takes longer to get around there. So we got our three runners. The next person you hire is a closing assistant somebody that 
literally from contract to closing manages your property. That is vital. So that would be key hire number two. Key hire number three, somebody that helps you with BPO and data entry, which we have two people doing that. And then key hire number number four would be somebody that helps you with billing. Uh, how to manage all of the uh, bills, utilities, point of sales, you know, whatever happens with your local market there. Anybody who handles anything that has to do with money. Uh, number five would be an assistant you, which would be kind of like an asset manager. You'd call them an asset manager in-house. Somebody that helps you communicate to all your clients in the same type of way that you communicate. And then number, hire number six would be another one of those. Hire number seven would be breaking up your contract to close person to two people and then you have them do contract to close and from offer to contract. So somebody who processes all the incoming offers all the way up to contract and then somebody that processes them after that. And up until that point, like your seventh hire right there, which, you know, that's kind of a, a mirror of our team, then everybody kind of starts getting assistance after that point, if that makes sense. Now, you've also brought in some buyer agents, that's correct. I have two buyer agents per market. That's basically somewhere that I do need to grow because it's always been a subject of pain for me. Getting people to follow up with all of these leads, which they will flood in, but they're not always good leads. You know, if you're servicing REO, there you probably have some rough areas that you deal with and those buyers still have to be followed up with, you know, per your clients. They want to, they want you to show them the property, stuff like that. So that's, uh, you definitely need a couple, two to three buyer agents, and that's what we have. We have two to three in Ohio, usually, and we have two in Illinois right now. And then to round it out, you mentioned earlier you have a call center or this receptionist position that you've, you've outsourced. Yep. So your, your calls and stuff like that, that's, that's my personal preference. That might not be for everybody, but he does help me with a lot of my own little projects because as much as I might hand out and delegate, you know, it's like my, my cup starts to fill back up as soon as I, I empty it with uh, a new hire, then you have to hire again. So that guy, he helps me with a lot of my, my pers- like a personal secretary. Daniel, you have all these people running around in different directions. You got a pretty big staff there. People are going to wonder the question, are you profitable? Today, yes. Before the outsourcing, no, I was not, not at all. Oh, so that made the big difference. Yes, that was really what made the difference there. Getting rid of medical, payroll tax, and slashing the hourly, you know, the whole robo-signer scandal, that's where our company became like, you know, Crossroads 2.0. We had to change everything because business essentially stopped for a little while there. Before that, for outsourcers, we were around average wage, around 16 an hour. And now our average wage, you know, when, when you factor in the outsourcers and everybody might be closer to like eight an hour. So cut it in half. Yeah. So, you know, you do that math, all those employees, all those hours, with that, that savings of 50% plus the payroll tax plus the medical, you add that all up and that's pretty much your profit, which is not bad. You know, it's not bad at all. Could you tell us your net profit margin as a percentage of your gross revenues. So we're just looking for a percentage here. Sure. Lately, it's been very good. 
Very, very good. It's been in between uh, 30 and 40%. But that's, you know, the payroll was the big thing. Payroll, rent. I mean, in our business, when we're in a service business and we don't have any product to sell, those are the only things you can really look at. It's your, your rent, your miscellaneous expense, and then your, your payroll. So once you get that payroll under control, the, the profit really goes up. And if I understood what you said correctly, just a few years ago, you were closer to the break-even. Is that true? Absolutely. And so you basically got control of your costs. Yep. How do you monitor and track your expenses? How did you make that transition? Are you talking to your accountant or bookkeeper every week or every quarter or every year? How are you monitoring that to make those corrections? Daily. Do you need a P&L daily? That was a big mistake I made in that first that first uh, two, three years when we were busy, busy, busy before the affidavit issue is, you know, I had the bookkeeper in place, but I wasn't looking at the P&L daily. You know, I might look at it monthly or quarterly. And when I did, it wasn't as close as I look at it now. That would be where a lot of people, in my opinion, probably fail where I failed. It was not knowing the P&L daily. Do you have other affiliated businesses? Um, I do. Not, not too much. I've got a joint venture title company, and that's about it. I, I had another one, and I, which I sold, and, but that was about it. This title company, the joint venture, you're, you're working with a title company. You've put together a third company that's your joint venture, is, and then you run business through there. Is that how that works? That's correct. In, um, in Ohio, since I'm not the broker, they presented that to me and they said, hey, you know, you're doing X amount of deals. You're allowed to buy this many shares if you like, but you got to try to send some business through. So I bought the maximum amount of shares and, and then I got a quarterly profit check and that worked out really well. So if, if anybody is presented with a, a joint venture like that, I would strongly at least look into it. You're just a percentage owner in that JV. You said you had to buy a certain number of shares. It was kind of a one-time thing. It doesn't fluctuate based on your volume, and that's why it works, because you just bought in as an owner of that company. Is that correct? That is correct. And it's usually managed by the title company that puts it on. This is the second one I've, I've been involved with, and they usually handle everything. I mean, all you literally do is sign your shares and then collect your, your dividend checks if you know, if, if enough people are sending business through it. You're not required to send in X amount, right? It's just, if it happens, great. And, if, and you'll get a piece of that from you or from others. And if it doesn't happen, that's fine too. There's no requirement that you send X number of transactions through. Yep, that's correct. How many people are in your partnership, your JV partnership? How many investors? In this one, I got to say, it's, it's, it's got to be between 25 and 35. So it's a big pool of people. Yeah, and the and the and I don't mind saying the the quarterly checks are typically anywhere between like seven hundred and fifty bucks to like fifteen hundred on a really, really good quarter. And I think I, I bought in for around five hundred bucks like a year and a half, two years ago. So it's really profitable. Daniel, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? Somebody who's just getting in to the business, I would tell them to find a really good mentor that has done what they want to do. Just having a mentor I don't think is good enough. They got to be somebody who's, who's done what you want to do. But that would be number one. That's definitely what I would recommend, number one. And then number two is time. It's more valuable than money. 
And if you're going to trade time for money, I, in my opinion, it's not worth it. You got to, you got to figure things out better than that. You could protect your time by delegating, you know, outsourcing things like that. You know, I would never work for $4 an hour. So I outsource that. It's, that's easy. And then don't, don't waste your time. Time is the biggest. Cause if you don't have enough time, you can't have a mentor. You can't set goals. You can't do anything without time. All you can do is just work, trade time for money. And so, you know, if somebody just getting in, I'd say, get yourself a mentor, get yourself some time, create time by delegating and protecting, do the 80, 20 principle, which, you know, that's, that's changed my life. You know, 20% of your inputs create 80% of your outputs. So if you got 10 things to do today and two of them are really, really, really important, do those two before you do the other eight. Those three things I, I think will, will make you go far. Do you think that top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? Yes, insanely valuable. I, I don't even know how you could have put a, a price on some of the, uh, the phone calls I've listened to on your site, like uh, the Pat Hyban or Tom Rubens, you know, literally I listen to some of those calls and these people are older than me. I, I just turned 34. You know, they could literally cut down the time that it takes for me to get from 50,000 to a hundred thousand dollars a year, just in, as, as an example, you know, they could cut that down from, you know, five years to a year if I just did what they said in the interview. So yeah, I, I would say they're priceless. Daniel, I've come to the end of the interview for today. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about that we haven't talked about? Boy, there's, just, there's always so much. Uh, besides those things that I just mentioned, you know, with the, the mentorship, the 80-20 and the time creation, I really can't think of anything huge. You know, the, those are the big things. And if you're going to listen to the interviews, execute them. You know, don't just get into this kind of analysis where you get the paralysis and you're just sitting there always taking in information. You know, listen, listen to a couple of really good interviews, read a couple of really good books, and then execute. You know, a lot of people just, just keep studying and keep learning, which is fine, but you've really got to execute and get out there and just do it. I, I, feel, I feel that success is kind of gauged by the amount of mistakes that you make, not not just the amount of successes you have. If you make a mistake, I think you're headed in the right direction. Well, Daniel, you offer excellent advice. You went from a painfully slow, zero-closing first year to top agent status selling 298 homes last year. Your detailed description of the virtual assistant process will assist many agents in lowering their cost and spreading wealth, hope, and goodwill throughout the world. Your ability to break complex tasks down in the bite-sized pieces and train VAs on the other side of the globe is impressive. Your openness, creativity, and experimentation will take you far. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 71 homes last year while managing 136 rental properties at the same time. Find out who he is on the next success call.
If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at freeleadtime.com. That's freeleadtime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.